Hello and welcome to History in Reverse, a father-daughter science fiction podcast. Today we'll be, we will be discussing The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin. listening to the first edition of History in Reverse. My name is Caroline and I'm here with my father Richie. Hi. Uh, so we're here today um, starting our first podcast, first science fiction podcast. And um, so it's the first one so we should probably go over some of the basics. So we named the podcast History in Reverse and that was your idea dad. So you want to explain uh, what that title means? Right. So basically uh, the way I thought about it is that when you read history, you read stuff that happened back in time. When you read science fiction, read the stuff that will happen in the future. So it's history in reverse. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so we're trying to do these podcasts pretty regularly where we're going to read uh, some science fiction piece and um, analyze it together and discuss it. Uh, we're both really into science fiction. Um, I blame that on my father for getting me into science fiction. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so uh, just a little bit about us just because it's the first podcast. So uh, my name's Caroline. I'm a lawyer, um, and I love reading uh, and watching science fiction. I'm a big Star Trek person. Uh, I've been rewatching Voyager recently, um, and I've read a bunch of science fiction uh, throughout my life, but a lot of the pieces we're reading, I'll be reading for the first time, uh, like the one we're doing today, uh, whereas I think you've read a lot of these yes. things already. So why don't you talk about um, yourself a bit? So I started reading science fiction when I was a teenager, like 12 or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, my favorite author is actually Stanislav Lem, which whom we'll get to eventually. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, you will make me read Lem. <laughs> that's one of the purposes of this podcast. Um, and only fairly recently, I started actually reading history, and uh, kind of discovered that that there's big similarity by reading history and reading science fiction because the stories are well-written histories. The stories are fascinating, mm-hmm. and you know, science fiction kind of explores some ideas that might happen mm-hmm. in that same kind of a context. So, anyway. Yeah, so you, you've read, like, tons and tons of science. You've read a lot more science fiction than I have. Yeah. And, you know, you were there when, like, Star Wars was happening and right. Star Trek was <laughs> happening. <laughs> and actually, I think when I was a kid, I first got into Star Trek because Voyager was airing. Right, we, we, we were watch Voyager together. Yeah. That's, that's, and I turned into a Trekkie. Yes, that is how it happened. (laughs) We got to go to a Star Trek convention. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, So for today, we read um, Ursula Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. Um, uh, Miss Le Guin just uh, passed away recently, so we thought um, it'd be good to read one of her books and uh, see what, you know, her legacy and everything like that. And this is my first time reading it, um, and I think you've read it before, right? Right. So I've read this book a long time ago, and I remember liking it. I reread it fairly recently, and then what I've been doing lately, which I discovered accidentally, is listening to um, audiobooks, especially of books I've read. And the the thing I find that when you hear a book and when you read it, you notice different things. Mm-hmm. And um, so recently, I listened to the audiobook of Left Hand of Darkness, and I also listened to a BBC production of Left Hand of Darkness as a radio show. Was kind of interesting as well. We'll talk about that more. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about Ursula Le Guin herself. Um, you read up a little bit about it, and you've read other books of hers, so why don't you talk about that? Right, so she was born in 1929 and only died in January of this year, 2018. And um, in the introduction, in the little description that exists in the Left Hand of Darkness that we have, they mentioned that her father was an anthropologist and her mother was a writer, So, mm-hmm. which kind of... That kind of makes sense. Kind of makes yeah, sense. Yeah, with like the way she writes, yeah. Um, so the books of hers that I've read um, was Left Out of Darkness, which we'll talk about a lot today. Um, there's a book called Lathe of Heaven that she wrote, which is a kind of very interesting book in the style of Philip K. Dick, if anything. Oh, wow. And it was actually made into a movie on PBS, which is available on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, the other book that, that she's well known for is something called The Dispossessed, which is another political kind of intrigue type of a thing between planets. And another book of hers that I've read uh, is called The Word for the World is Forest, which is actually, I think, was an inspiration for the movie Avatar, you know, the one with the big, tall, blue people. 
Yeah, blue, blue people avatar and the forest, right? Because the, the world is like, and that right. the world is all forest and everything. Right. Now she has written a whole bunch of other stuff. There's a whole bunch of stuff of, that she wrote, which is called the series of Wizard of Air, uh, Air and Sea or something like that. Earth and Sea, I'm sorry. And I have not read any of that stuff. And because it sounds like fantasy, but from what I'm hearing, it's not quite, but I'm not that interested in fantasy, so I've never read it before. Mm -hmm. I might like that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm into the fantasy stuff. And so in, in the introduction to the to this book, introduction by the author, she talks about right, what it is to write science fiction, which I kind of liked what she said. And she essentially said that science fiction is not for predicting the future, but she thought of it as a thought experiment. So you imagine some kind of thing, and then you try to build a story around it, imagine how things might work. Mm -hmm. And um, goal, you know, she's, this is quotation from her introduction, says, goal is not to predict the future, but to describe reality. Mm -hmm. And um, this is kind of similar to something I, somebody once said about art in general, that artists tell lies to, to expose the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think it's very true. Um, you know, it's not possible really to predict the future. So why would you try to write something about it? Like, it's, and that's not interesting. Who like who really cares? You know, we want. Well, to actually, see. that's funny because that's the point that she makes in introduction. She says like, you know, yeah, you can try to predict and stuff, but it's boring. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, that's kind of what the foretellers do in the story too, and I guess we'll get to that. So yeah. she sort of works that into <laughs> works that into the story as well. Um, so okay, so that's um, Ursula Le Guin. Obviously, she's written a lot of things. So as for Left Hand of Darkness, obviously there's going to be spoilers. We're talking about the book. Um, if you haven't read it and you want to stop now and go read it, uh, we'll still be here. Right. Um, <laughs> but if, if not, we're going to give like a, a very brief summary. Um, so we're introduced to a world called Gethin. And at the, the pronunciations on the audiobook. Yeah, that sounds okay. right. Yeah. Uh, so, so I haven't listened to the audiobook, so I'm basing it on what I read. But if, if there's a particular way to pronounce things, just let me know. Um, the world's called Gethin, it was also called Winter, and it seems like uh, humans have gone there to try to get the humanoid species that's living on Gethin to join in their sort of like... So why is it called Winter? Because it's really cold there, it's got lots of snow, there's ice and snow and blizzards and it's really cold and there's no flying animals, apparently. And I don't know, you can't fly right. in the snow. But yeah, so the... the what was it called? The Ecumen? Right. So the, 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 the kind of backstory is that there's Ecumen, which is a fed, like federation of, of, of 80 planets. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to bring a new planet into the Ecumen. And the way they do it is by sending an envoy, just one person, to that planet to try to convince them to join. Mm -hmm. Now, this book does not have any faster than light space travel. So it takes a while to get from place to place. But it has the Ansible, which is... I. I think it was Ursula Le Guin who kind of quote-unquote invented it, which mm -hmm. is a communication device that is instant. That pops up in Ender's Game too, right? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's where he yeah. borrowed it from there, and that, that, that appears in uh, the world. The word for the world is forest and a few other places. But the, you know, the, the, this is if you want to go to quantum physics, there is some, some possible theories that you can maybe do communications, instantaneous communication between any part in two points in the universe mm -hmm. it's it's uh, science fiction magic basically yeah tech okay. tech 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 <laughs> tech tech um yeah so so he's the um guy who goes to the surface is named genli i a lot of the gethenians can't pronounce his name so for part of the book he's called genri i they can't pronounce l's in one of the countries and he's just sort of chilling trying to convince the government to join the ecumen and have the planet join the ecumen um, to be part of this coalition uh, for everybody's benefit. And um, it's, a, it's an interesting strategy, I think, as opposed to like declaring war on the planet and taking it over or, right. or sending troops or sending like, a military something over there. Right, They're actually somebody asks him why there's only just one of you and mm -hmm. it's just not to be threatening. Right, exactly. It's like if it's just him, he's a curiosity. If there's two or more, then it's an invasion. Right. Um, so he goes, and the story picks up when he's been there for about two years, and he's finally got an audience with the Mad King of one of the of countries Carhide. of Carhide, and uh, and then the shenanigans that that follow therefrom. Um, he's helped by was it was Estravan the prime minister? So Estravan was a Estrevan. prime minister who was trying to kind of help him to get the audience with the king and and kind of get them to agree to join the Ecumen and, and whatever. 
but uh, Genli doesn't quite trust him. So he's mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, kind of like palace intrigue ha- right. apparently happening. Yeah, that's the thing. It was it was difficult as a reader, and maybe that's because we're human and we're not Gathenian. It was difficult to sort of grasp some of that palace intrigue. But we, we'll talk about um, what's Shifgrather <laughs> a little <laughs> bit. But basically, um, Estravan is that how you say it? Estravan yeah. uh, gets exiled. And then uh, Genli realizes that he meets with the king, and the king's not willing to. The king join is not him. that interested. Yeah. yeah, and so then uh, Genli travels to another country on the planet. Orgorin. Um, or yeah, it's like or Orgorin. How, how do they say it? Orgorin. Orgorin. So it's spelled really weird, and he travels there um, to see if. And the well, interesting part about that country, there's different kind of government. It's, yeah. They have these thing guys called commensals. Right. So. Who it's more like multi-party parliamentary kind of a thing. Yeah, it happening. seems more bureaucratic. There's more yeah. um, structure in a, a different right. sort of way. And the two countries, Carhide and Orgorin, are sort of um, ne- never at war because one of the things right. the Gathenians won't go to war with each other because they don't seem to know what war is. But they they're sort of opposites. They're sort of always competing with each other. Somewhat, yeah. yeah. Um, so he that's when he goes to the foretellers. I think right is that point. Yeah, before going to Orgorin. Right, so he goes but, to... So before we get into all of that stuff, what what is so different about Gathenians? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot. Um, the Gathenians don't have gender in the same way humans do. So um, the the word that that um, Ursula Le Guin uses, she describes a humans, the humans as being bisexual. That's not what the word really means now, and I'm not sure the word really ever meant that, but what she means by that is that there are two distinct biological genders for humans so there's male and female Gathenians exist in a state of um, what is she called ambisexuality or I don't yeah. know she like a, like a state where they're basically gender neutral except for like one a couple days during the month where they're potentially sexually active and if they become sexually active with another Gathenian one will take on the traits of the male and one will take on the traits of the female and and, and the they, female the one that takes Traits of the female can become pregnant and bear a child. Right, exactly. And then will remain pregnant for the duration of um, having the child and nursing the child. But then they will revert back to being gender neutral and um, they can go either way. So you can, you know, have one cycle where a Gathenian is male and then the very next cycle that Gathenian is female. It just sort of depends on who they pair with, it right. seems like. Um, and that's called Kemmer. Kemmer, yes. And there's all kinds of societal rules about Kemmer and who you can Kemmer right, with. So well, there's some rules, but they also they have these camera houses. So like when mm-hmm. when the, the time strikes, you can just go and pair off with somebody. Yeah, and everybody gets like a week off for it. Like each time, I I want that week off. <laughs> I think we should have that. Um, but yeah, so I mean that's what's what's really um so unique about them. Uh, kind of I guess maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but throughout in, in the book, there's like hints at why such a species evolved in the first mm-hmm. place, and I guess Genli Ai kind of seems to indicate that maybe this wasn't a real evolution by the experiment. Right. By, you know, I mean, the civilization has existed there for a few thousand years. Mm-hmm. So he claims there's some evidence that, that there, there were some genetic um, experiments done to see if, if such a civilization could exist without war. Right, exactly. And so it was, and there's some indication that there was like a native species to get in, that humans like set down a colony and interbred with or some something along those lines so the the implication from genli's point of view being that there's a relationship between right. humans and Gathenians. now it's a, this is something that that came up when we we're talking about the book i didn't actually notice that part about the the species it's and very stuff. quick yeah it's yeah. very i think i highlighted it i have um, an actual physical copy of the book that i highlighted with a real highlighter so i think i think i highlighted um, it somewhere but yeah, no, they do say it's at the um, the chapter that talks about it being an experiment that there was mm-hmm. a, there was that. But but yeah. so the, the political situation though at the point where where the book takes place, the two countries Carhide and uh, Ogren, are kind of having some border conflicts and and right. there's some indication that it might escalate further. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, they they're having I forgot the name of the area they're having the dispute over. Right, right. It's got some, some weird S name. I don't remember. Right. But they yeah they're having some like border dispute and. Um, I also like the description of Carhide that they um, they give. Carhide is not really a country, but a mm-hmm. family quarrel. Yeah. 
Because it, it seems it all sort of indicated that the Gathenians, their civilization sort of, um, I guess, progressed to a point, but then seems to have plateaued. Right. Like they don't have a lot of advanced technology. Well, they have the technology that's advanced is for how to survive in the cold. So right. the, the like one of the little things that she mentions is that houses have winter doors. Yeah. Right. Which are the doors at the top on up, the second floor. Up high on second floor because yeah. there's so much snow. Right. Which is cute. And I mean, with the snow we've been getting here, we, we probably <laughs> need that. <laughs> so then the um, Genli goes to the foretellers, which is uh, an interesting part of the story. And more basically the foretellers are like a little group of people that if you pay them something, they'll answer you a, a question um, that can tell the future. And they seem to always be right. And uh, he pays like two rubies or something and asks if Gethin, as the planet, is going to join the Ekumen um, within the next five years and they, they do their little magical foretelling which is a really interesting process right. it seems to be sort of semi-telepathic right. to an extent they answer him yes that it, that the planet will join the Ekumen, um within five years and um, this is sort of where she gets she gets in that bit of philosophy we were talking about earlier with the you know science fiction being a thought experiment and you know, why would you bother want to wanting to predict the future because the sort of theme that Genley takes away from the foretellers is that it's totally useless to have the, an answer to the wrong question. Right. right. So, like throughout the book, which is kind of nice, there's these little stories or legends from the history of of Gethin, from mythology mm -hmm. of Gethin. So right. the the one about the foretellers is the guy who asks, "When will I die?" And they tell him, "You will die on the nineteenth day of the month." Right. <laughs> it's totally useless. <laughs> he gets very upset. Hmm. Exactly. So I mean, I think or she. Oh, I don't know. Gen Genli refers to everybody as he, unless... Does he refer to any of the Athenians as she, actually? Sometimes when they're, like, in the... If they're in, I mean, if they're in Kemmer, yeah. But he, he reverts to he, which I think is pretty realistic for... At least for Western humans. So, like, European and, like, American humans. I'm not so sure what, like... Um, well, oh. Genli actually is a tall black man, so... Right, so that's an interesting question. Is like, where is Genli? I mean, I, it's it's so far in the future, but I mean, like, one of the questions would be like, where is Genli from? Like, is he? Well, he said he was born on Earth, but I mean, right. he basically joined the service essentially right. to be an envoy, mm -hmm. and then because of the time travel, you know, because it takes so long to go between stars, basically by the time he gets to to winter, you know, so many years have passed on Earth. So. Right. Yeah, he mentions like his parents are have been dead for a long time because right? yeah, of yeah. the traveling and everything. So, um, but he, I, I do think it's, it's natural, at least for, at least for Western cultures to revert to the masculine, yeah. right? And, uh, so I thought that was, in terms from his point of view, that made sense. I thought that was a, a call that made sense and sort of spoke to Genli's own, mm -hmm. um, prejudices. prejudices. Yeah, exactly. And his assumptions. So he goes to the, well, he goes to the foretells and what does he do? He goes to Ogorin, Ogorin. Right. So what happens is after he, the, the audience with the king, basically he gets nowhere. So he somebody tells him you should go visit this other country ogre and maybe you mm. can get better luck there and the background story is is his his estrovan who was the prime minister who was helping him gets all of a sudden exiled and the way the exile works in carhide you have three days to leave the country or they kill you right so uh, estrovan also goes to ogre mm. and uh, ultimately they they kind of come in contact there mm. and genli talks to the commensals trying to convince him one of the things he reveals which you know he's been showing the ansible mm -hmm. to people but they said it could be just a magic trick mm -hmm. although they did have scientists analyze his like you know his spaceship his and everything yeah. and his his biology so they know they, they kind of call him a pervert because he's always in camera because he's, right, always, he's male. always male so he reveals to the commensals that there's another spaceship in the orbit around the sun mm -hmm. and he can bring it down to kind of show that that he's telling the truth mm -hmm. and they get some of them get all excited thinking that you know being able to do that, that gain, will get a political advantage and advantage of a car hide. But um, Orgrin has the secret police that controls everything. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, there's like a little bit of commie kind of stuff, mm -hmm. commie as in communist, uh, <laughs> uh, going on there. And I guess the secret police deems him a threat and they just kidnap him mm -hmm. and send him to this uh, voluntary farm. Yeah, the farm, the lovely little farm that he's on. Uh, which is a place where you do some work and where Gethanians barely can survive mm -hmm. who, and they're much better, I guess, built and adapted to, to deal with the cold. the cold. yeah. And then what happens, I guess this is a big spoiler, right? So Estrovan, through some machinations, um, 
rescues him. Magical rescue. <laughs> and then they have to decide what to do. So mm-hmm. what they decide that the, the thing that makes most sense is for for them to go back to Korhide. Mm-hmm. They're going back to try to contact his ship, right? Is that the idea? Well, f- to contact his ship, he needs access to the radio. So like when right. he is arrested, they take away all his stuff, mm-hmm. including the Ansible or whatever. And the, the plan that they come up with is that they can go over to Carhide, bring the ship down, and kind of Carhide will kind of rate, be, it'll be prestigious for Carhide, that King will kind of go along with it because right. it's going to increase mm-hmm. his whatever. But Shiftgrether. Shiftgrether, <laughs> right. We'll so you that. can explain that. Um, and when they just trying to figure out how to do that without being caught, because um, he's an escapee from prison and they have no papers travel papers or whatever so they can't use roads um, and it's winter mm-hmm. and so they decide they to can't actually take a ship, right, right because the seas are frozen so they decide the way to go there's essentially i guess in the north or south pole there's a mm-hmm. big glacier that they can cross i thought and, i thought of it as the north pole i don't know if they actually uh, said yeah they, they yeah. didn't i don't think they did i also thought of it as north yeah. pole but it, this could be just our, our northern uh, hemisphere prejudice yeah <laughs> <laughs> That's I guess the last third of the book is the trip across. Yeah, the, so that that's one of the things you said when you when you were um, rereading it. The you, the first time you read it, you thought that the the part on out in the ice was a much longer portion. Right. It is actually a pretty long portion. So the co- the copy of the book I have is three hundred pages, and they get out on the ice on page two hundred. So it's a pretty substantial portion of the story, though not the majority. But but it's at least a third of it where they're mm. out on the ice, and I think those chapters are fantastic. Yeah, I think they're like really well. That's what amazing. I remembered. Like when I thought about the book from reading it before, that's that's the part that sticks in your head. Well, and you were saying that the BBC play structured it differently. Right. So, uh, so besides listening to the audiobook, I listened to a BBC play, radio play of mm-hmm. of the book, and the way they structured it was it starts when they're on the ice and they're doing flashbacks to the various different things. Mm-hmm. I li- I like that structure. I think that that's good. I don't know if that would have worked in the book version because of how i mean then you would have been playing with a timeline along with playing with all these words and all these other issues mm-hmm. but i i like the idea if they were to make it into a movie or something right. that would be a great way to structure it but yeah so then they're out on the ice it's really cold and they're trying to survive and it takes them 80 days, 80 days or something or like something, that right. it's like 800 miles trekking through snow and past volcanoes and dragging things along and everything and they become like really good bros on this trip. <laughs> well, it, it's I, I would go beyond that. So yeah. <laughs> that that's that's also like the interesting thing about this story is because they're, they're longer than a month, and mm-hmm. somebody goes in the camera, mm-hmm. and somebody starts looking like a beautiful woman, mm-hmm. and but they don't doesn't go any further than that. Yeah, yeah. I think mean, I highlighted a passage about it. Yeah. So they yeah basically that that's the thing, and it's sort of call. I mean, the whole time, I think one of the things that Genley's been struggling with throughout the story is like how does he deal with his masculinity in a society that really doesn't care about his masculinity yeah that, that, they have no, that, that they has no, no meaning yeah, yeah it has so yeah like for example when when he's trying not to cry right right because that's an, not a manly thing to do right. but on geffen that that doesn't make sense it's yeah like, it's like what what does that mean like it, there's no masculine or feminine there's just you being in camera or you being not in camera so yeah, so I highlighted a part um, while they were on this trip, and this is sort of when they sort of they don't say it out loud that like they're sexually well, attracted to each other. No, that there's a part when 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 Estrovan says, "Please don't touch me." Yeah, yeah, this is this part. That's what it, that's what I'm uh, talking. About. He says, "I must not touch you," and so Gamli sort of talks about it, and he talks about how they're sort of closer now than they've ever been. But if they basically if they were to touch, that would sort of ruin everything. So he says, for us to meet sexually would be for us to meet once more as aliens. We had touched in the only way we could touch. We left it at that. I do not know if we were right. So it's sort of it's sort of interesting because he's saying they so they they touched in the sense that they touched emotionally. Yeah, it's uh, like a platonic love story. Right, it's, right. Which, uh, which is one of the things I really like that about. This right, book. but it's like if they if they had physically touched each other, it would have been apparent that they were alien to each other, right. Right. and then that would have, would have almost separated them in a right. way again. Which I thought was interesting. So, so yeah, I mean, that's they're on the ice. They, they become really good bros, <laughs> or sisters, <laughs> or, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and uh, and they they do ultimately make it to Carhide. Right. Um, and then explain the death because I don't understand it. I don't. I didn't get what happened. So exactly. well, remember, he was exiled from Carhide and right. basically to come back, 
uh, you get killed, right? So the death penalty. So if you come back, unless the king lifts it. Right. So somebody, they were able to kind of anonymously kind of s spend some time in Carhide, mm -hmm. but then somebody, there must right be a price out. on his head. So mm -hmm. that day somebody gave him in and the, the guy who was the prime minister. Um, Taib, is, it, is that how you pronounce Taib, it? Yeah. Yeah. Sent border agents after them and, and they, they caught up with them. And, but they so they're like I, I and they shot him. I ha I highlighted a line because right before they shoot um Estevan, spoiler Estevan's dead. Um, right before they shoot Estevan, they uh he and Genli sort of like cuddle in the forest. We huddled in the dark hollow under the, under dark trees in the snow. We lay right together for warmth. So they like cuddle for a bit and mm -hmm. then, and then I don't really get it because Estevan sort of. Like skis into. Well, he's trying to to get across to to the border. Oh, and he gets caught basically. Basically, the yeah, ideas. yeah. Oh, I, I see. Because he was trying oh. to just cross to the other country. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe he wanted to die. I don't know. I don't know. He was really confused. So one of the things that happens with them on the ice is that Genli uses this power, teaches him the power of mind speak. So you want to talk about mind speak? Yeah. So mind speak's really cool. Um, this is one of the cool science fiction ideas that comes up along with the Ansible. Um, Mind speaks basically telepathy. Right. It's like human-based telepathy. They can talk to each other in their thoughts. And the idea with that being that there's there's no secrets. Right. If you're reading someone's mind, if they're reading your mind, you, you can't. But it is secrets. voluntary. So it's like you yeah. have to actually speak to somebody and they have to answer it. If right. somebody doesn't want to speak to you with their mind, you can't just right. reach in and pull stuff out. Yeah, exactly. So the Gethenians, um, Genli uh, believes pretty early on after watching the, the foretellers that the Gathenians would be capable of mind speak. And this is one of the other pieces of evidence, I think, that supports the idea that they're related to the humans somehow, that they would have the same ability. Right, right. Um, though there are problems with that theory, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But, so he te Genli teaches Estevan mind speak. Or Pence attempts to teach him, and then uh, teach him a little bit. Hmm. But um, what happens that's really interesting, especially in the audiobook, is the speech that comes out in Estrevan's head is in the in the voice of his brother. Right. So he Estrevan has a brother that he loved who's dead now for mm -hmm. whatever reason. And when Genli speaks to him and finally gets through, it comes in the voice of the brother and, and Estrevan kind of freaks out. Right. Yeah, that's creepy. Uh I I get that. That's creepy. Um yeah, so it's so yeah, I was wondering because they some people say that Estrevan committed suicide and that was like bad because they don't like that. But so it's sort of like well, no, actually, yeah, suicide was a taboo on that world. So yeah. you, you, you know, it was worse than than pretty much anything else. Yeah. Right? So, so yeah, Ashavan definitely had been going through some pretty serious emotional trauma. I guess he he had gone through some in his life with his with his brother and everything, and then you know, get getting to the point where he can they they do this big trek, which is very difficult. They barely make it. They barely yeah. make it with the food they have, and good uh, luck. Yeah, and he falls into like a crevasse or something at some point, yeah. right? Yeah, very, very um, scary. Yeah, so like there's one, there's one part on the, part of it on the ice, which you can try to imagine that where they they get out and there is nothing. You know, it's like a total whiteout mm -hmm. where you, there's no shadows, so you can't tell. It's hard to tell what the what up and down is mm -hmm. because you can't see. There's no sky. It's all just gray or white. Mm -hmm. And and Genli finds it very hard just even walking in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, pretty dangerous. So I mean, uh, you know, Estevan goes through all this, and then hearing, it's sort of interesting too that he would hear Genli's voice as his brother's voice. I guess that sort of goes to the bonds that they had formed. Right. So Estevan dies, and ultimately Genli is able to contact his ship. You know, Gethin does join the Ekerman. Right. And then uh, Genli goes and visits Estevan's father. I forgot what the name of their hearth was. Esther? I forgot. Something like something that. Like yeah. that. They, they had like different Oh, that, that's hearth. That was kind of nice. That, that the family kind of... Yeah. The vine was called the hearth. Because yeah. I guess, you know, when you when you call, then you sit by a fireplace. Yeah, you sit by a hearth. Yeah. So he goes to the hearth and he meets the father and tells... So let's talk about Shift Grethor. I don't know what Shift Grethor is. I, I read the whole book. I don't know. So, <laughs> so in terms of the intrigue, right? See, I have no idea what it is either, really. Yeah. And and the comparison has been, uh, it's like face in in, in, in Japanese yeah. Oriental cultures. That mm -hmm. that kind of an idea. Um, I sort of get that. So because you know I studied Japanese for a long time in college, and you and I went to Japan. Yeah. Japanese culture sort of has like an honor right. thing, and you have to be like very polite and stuff like that. To be, um, you know, to 
abide by the, the honor code. And it sort of is like that unspoken kind of respect thing. So that's sort of like what Yeah, like so the, 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 the whole going back to Carhide thing was what they would say is that the king would call the commensals and say, so where's the envoy? Uh, and they would say, oh, sorry, he got sick and died. Right. And Carhide king would say, really? Because he just showed up here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, and they would they would they always describe it as playing Shifgrether or, right. or like playing at Shifgrether. Right. So yeah, it's a sort of like like face, I guess that's like the best it's English. Like, like, oh manners yeah. kind of a, kind of certain kind of manner. Right. Yeah. And it's like your your um I guess your your reputation sort of Sort of, yeah, it's, yeah. It's very odd. And that's I mean the reason I guess it's odd to us is because it's odd to Genley. We get a lot right. of it through his point of view and he really doesn't not get Shifgrether. He's right. got like they're all the way out on the ice together for and, months. And, and they, they have some Shifgrether. interesting, um, I guess, manners, conventions. Like they say, um, you're not allowed to uh, give advice. Kind of directly. Right. It's like always indirect. Right. Well, I mean, that that's sort of, I mean, I could, that's, yeah, that's sort of similar to like in Japan, you're not, so you're not supposed to like really tell people what to do. It's, it's, um, it's inappropriate, for example, it's impolite to point, for example, right. in Japan. And you're you're not supposed to like point at stuff. It's like too direct at mm. the person, and so it's, it's like a politeness thing. So it's okay. it's similar, but yeah, that's what Shiv Grether is apparently, and and Genli doesn't get it, and I don't get it. <laughs> well, you have to probably live on that planet for a while. Yeah, I'd have to go there and spend some time with them. Um, so let's see. We talked about some cool science fiction stuff with Mind Speak, the Ansible. Was there any other besides the gender switching stuff? Was there any other like? Cool, like science fictiony ideas that came out of this. Well, some of like the the I like the stove that they use. When oh they travel, yeah! Right? So they had this little stove that could act as a lamp, a heater, a, mm. a cook stove, cook stove yeah. and it had some kind of fuel and that lasted for like months. Yeah, it lasted for like over a year. Yeah. It was yeah, and it was like the it was kind of sad because he had to sell it at the end. So they had right. it, they bought it prior to going out on the ice. They used it the whole trip. Without it, they would have died. Of it was course. their only source of heat. And when they get to Carhide, they have to sell it. Right, because what he needs, he needs to contact his ship, and the only way to do it is through radio. So he mm -hmm. buys some time at radio station. Now, the what in terms of technologies existing on this world is they they don't have TV; they have radio. Right, right, because it's easier to have radio than yeah, it is radio on TV. is a lot simpler. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of their technologies are built on surviving the winter. They do have electric cars. Yeah, they did have electric cars. I don't know; it's so strange. They didn't have a lot of animals. There right, there were, there were no, like, horses or cows or something. Right. Yeah, because, um, yeah, like, when they're going over the ice, they don't, like, try to get an, an oxen to pull the thing. They just pull it themselves. Like, right. they pull their own sledge right. as they right. go. Yeah, there's no really big animals, which I guess gets to that whole idea, uh, which I guess we could talk about now, the um, the origin of the Gathenians, the, the idea that they descended from humans. Mm -hmm. You know, that's sort of problematic for a lot of reasons, right? For like like, real science reasons, that not being really viable. It's it's kind of, there are some species of animals that are, that can become one sex or the other, mm -hmm. but not the mammalian level. Right. Uh, so, I mean, would it have worked if they, if there had been like a native population that bred with colonist humans? It's interspecies breeding is is usually result if, if possible at all usually results if, if in offsprings that are sterile so right um probably not you could yeah. well you could do genetic manipulation right so if you, if you have technology to fiddle with the dna mm -hmm. then you could probably do lots more stuff yeah i mean i'm willing to for I, so so my, my thing about the the descending the gathenians descending from humans is the only point of view we really get that theory from is from the human point of view right, right? so Ganley alludes to it and then there's the chapter about the, the it's like field notes from the first expedition because right, prior right. to Ganley going to Gethin there was like some other expedition that had happened prior that had studied the planet first and so it's all human point of views that are saying oh well these people it must have been descended from us and um, one of the things that Ursula Le Guin does in the book is play with the point of view structure we have from Genley's point of view, Estrevan's point of view, and then we get these like field notes or um, or myths, folklore, yeah, yeah myth yeah. kind of thing, and it might very well just be that it's 
it, it's incorrect that they're descended from humans. Right. It might just be that they're their own independent. The human impression species. I got is there wasn't they were not so much descended, but actually they took humans and fiddled with their genetics and then just and left them there. there. Yeah, I was looking so that's still sort of descended from them. It's genetically well, and, related and, and descended from from those genetic modified yeah. ones. There, were, yeah. that, there wasn't any interbreeding or anything. I mean, yeah, I mean, whether there was interbreeding or not, I don't, I don't know if it's just that's Genley's point of view, um, and that's what they think happened, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily true. Right. You know, I don't know, because I, I mean, is it totally bonkers to think that in the entire universe there's potentially another humanoid species? I mean, in this universe, it seems to be 80, right? There's 80 right, points. but I mean, the, the implication there is that they all started from one place. Oh, I see. Yeah, and okay, spread, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I get, so I mean, the, maybe that's what the humans think happened. But you'd think if you're, if you're, if you as humans did that, there would be some kind of record of you well, it's, doing that. it's <laughs> thousands of years ago, so, you know. Still. Right, so which is, like, that the archives be, yeah. of Ecumen have something or other, which is what they're mentioning, but, right. you know, maybe the archives blew up at some point. You know, somebody burned the library of Alexandria Acumen or something. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess I could, I could come up with explanations for it. In terms of the point of view thing, uh, I, I love point of view stories. That's what my, my big thing is A Song of Ice and Fire. That's the books that Game of Thrones is based on. Um, read the books, they're better. And that's all point of view. Well, I, I, I noticed it this time around, which I, I don't remember noticing it before, is that, like, the especially part on the ice is like the chapters alternate mm-hmm. between the two of them yep. and that was very effective i thought yeah. oh it's very effective absolutely and you get to sort of see their thoughts on each other and and then their interpretations of the world so one of the interesting things about it it what, what year was this book written 69 69 wasn't published so the um the main character genley has uh, what I think we could fairly call some pretty sexist views about men and women. Yeah, you know, from Earth. But so the, the way this comes up is at some point they're sitting in this in the storm in a tent in the middle of the glacier and and they're just chatting, mm-hmm. and and Estravan asks Genley about women, and yeah. and what he says is kind of what today would be considered pretty sexist. Yeah, I think I highlighted it. It's like he's like, yeah, they're different. They're like a different species. You but know, they, who knows you know, what they want? You know. They don't tend to be like mathematicians or anything. So I right, don't know. Right. It's kind of funny. But, I mean, my, you know, initially when you, you read a book, you think, you know, maybe the author's trying to uh, tell you what they feel. But I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think it's um, Genley. So here's the, he's asked about what, what humans are like. And he says, um, this is Genley. I suppose the most important thing, the heaviest single factor in one's life is whether one's born male or female. In most societies, it determines one's expectations, activities, outlook, ethics, manners, almost everything vocabulary, semiotic usages, clothing, even food. Women tend to eat less. It's extremely hard to separate the innate differences from the learned ones. Even where women participate equally with men in society, they still, after all, do all the childbearing and so most of the child rearing. And then he sort of goes on about how they're not mathematicians or composers of music or inventors. Yeah. Not, not something that we would endorse nowadays. Well, it's kind of funny because the 60s were kind of the sexual revolution. You know, the mm-hmm. birth control kind of became widely mm-hmm. spread around then. Mm-hmm. So, but it's interesting. And that's yeah. when, um, crime-wise, when you would—that's when uh, sexual assaults and things like that actually started to be reported and prosecuted mm-hmm. and more, more um, frequently. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of interesting. But I, so when I was first reading it, I was wondering if that was Ursula Le Guin and mm-hmm. just the time she was writing in and like her thoughts because of that, or that was intentional because it was Genley's point of view. Mm-hmm. And I think that was intentional because it was Genley's point of view. Right. Because it's it pops up throughout the book and it's like so blatant, and it's like so but obviously on the surface. Oh, throughout he makes comments in the beginning about um, uh, his he describes his landlady who seems to be is a Gathenian who seems to have like a, basically a big butt. So he says right. that the oh, Gathenian reminds reminds him of a woman, and um, he mentions all the time how Estravan has these feminine qualities that he doesn't like. Uh, he's always negatively speaking. Like he he talked about um, Gathenians, and he said Gathenians did not go to war because all all Gathenians have like vendettas, assassinations, murder, murders, quarrels, but they don't go to war. They've never had a war. And he says um, they the Gathenians lacked it seemed the capacity to mobilize. They behaved like animals in that respect, or like women. They did oh. not behave like men or ants. He said, and he says stuff like that throughout. I highlighted mm, some of yeah, it, but then yeah. I, I lost my okay. highlighter. 
he he makes all kinds of comments, but they're very. That's the thing is they're so blatant that maybe I think it was they on purpose, kind of yeah, yeah. just to to show that sexist attitude versus this culture where where it doesn't exist. Exactly. Like I mean, the the thing about him not trying trying not to cry or like he was mm-hmm. always trying to be the strong one mm-hmm. when they were going up the right up the mountains yeah right? yeah no i think that's absolutely it it's sort of like what does genley do with all this masculinity he has just you know by his nature and going into this culture that totally does not care about his masculinity right it's like they well it has i don't nothing. know if you noticed at the very end when the ship comes down and and his compatriots come out and the women come out yeah and mm-hmm. he's all, all confused <laughs> He's like, I haven't seen a woman in three years. I don't know what to do. I'm shaking her hand. I'm confused. She's touching me. She, they gave him hugs. And he was like, they're giving me hugs. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it was sort of interesting that, um, use of the point of view structure. I, I liked that. Mm. I thought that was good. So what was your favorite part? My favorite part was the, the foretelling. I thought that was really cool. That was uh, when he goes and asks the question. I, I like the the lore about people asking the wrong questions and there was like that side story too but somebody asked like what was the meaning of life or something and everybody died and somebody said blew up yeah yeah and it was like somebody exploded it was it was was like a little side piece in there i thought that was pretty interesting and how they seemed to be harnessing i guess or, or focusing their their natural telepathic abilities that they didn't realize they had right and that's something genley talks about towards the end too right here he says i have hunches and and right. they told him maybe you should explore that that ability more maybe you know right exactly and that humans had oh and it's sort of an interesting idea that like humans had always had this ability but nobody ever knew anybody else who had it nobody knew how to train it that kind right. of thing and so he was sort of getting these sort of looking onto the species it's also... kind of equivalent to like the mind speak because his mind speak is something humans right. innately have but you have to learn it right exactly so he's looking onto this the species and he's seeing that happening but he, he can't exactly train them in it. Um, but he does, when the foretellers are doing their prediction, he does connect to them and he sees right. like the crazy images they have. It's like a woman screaming the word yes, which is the answer to the question. <laughs> well, was it a woman or a man? He describes it as a woman, a woman in armor. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know, is what he said. <laughs> <laughs> From his point of view, who knows? <laughs> What was your favorite part of the story? My favorite part was, of course, the trip over the, the, the glacier. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the, the part I remember was, you know, especially when there was that, like the whiteout where so I tried to imagine that. Or when he described some of the, how cold it was, that, that his eyes froze up. Mm-hmm. He said at one point that if you weren't careful, your nose would freeze. Right. And so you'd you'd have to breathe in through your mouth and it'd be so cold it would be like daggers like right daggers. right oh, his eyes froze closed mm-hmm. so, so estrogen had to like breathe on his yeah. eyes to unfreeze them so he kept it's getting kind of hard to imagine that kind of that kind of cold i don't know we've been getting a lot of snow <laughs> I think it's kind of similar <laughs> in the in the bbc version of the story like he when he's kidnapped by the, the secret police mm-hmm. to stay sane he's trying to remember all the 62 words for snow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we haven't talked about the title. Oh, yes. We want to talk about the title. I feel like there's something here, but I just can't get at it. Yeah, I, I, I outlined the the little poem that they have. So the title is The Left Hand of Darkness, and that's from a, I guess, a poem or a phrasing right, that yeah. Ursula wrote. Oh, you have it there. Okay, good. Um, do you want to read it? Yeah, you read it. Oh, you want me to read it? Um, so this is a like a phrase that's within the story, and it's uh, light is the left hand of darkness, and darkness the right hand of light. Two are one, life and death, lying together like lovers in Kemmer, like hands joined together, like the end and the way. So it's a very yin yang kind of. Yeah, well, right. So that's I think that was when they were talking about that kind of stuff. And he draws the yin yang. Uh, right, right, the because they talk about like the duality between the man and woman and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of interesting so then the, the the title of the book is the left hand of darkness which is out of that first line it says light is the left hand of darkness mm-hmm. so so light is the left hand of darkness so the title of the left hand of darkness means light. means light so why that instead of the second line darkness the right hand of light like the, the title could have easily been instead of the left hand of darkness it could have been the right hand of light they both sound cool I don't so know. i think it sounds cooler you think this one um, sounds cooler well the, the other thing is <laughs> There's this creation myth that, that is they talked about. Where there's yeah. the two brothers who mm-hmm. pledge Kemet to each other, which is a you, two siblings, I should right. say. 
and that's such a taboo. Well, you can do they it. They can mate, but you can't. You cannot. You know. You can do it till you have one child, but you can't stay together right. after that. And or something. then one of them commits suicide and winds mm -hmm. up being like, in the inside, live inside the blizzard, mm -hmm. and then somebody's hand gets frostbitten, Frozen. and it's the left, the left hand. hand. I did, I don't know. I feel like there's something there. I might have to read it again to get at it, but. I mean, it might have just been because it sounded cool. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, from what I've read, is that authors don't necessarily pick the titles. Sometimes the the editors oh, yeah. pick the titles. But I don't know. It just it's. I mean, it it clearly ties to one of the main themes because it has to do yeah. with the duality and the yin right, and yang. Right. But I wonder if it's saying because the book is sort of equally about Genli and Estraven. Yeah. Right. So it's like Genli's our initial main character, but Estraven gets yeah. a lot of chapters yeah. and a lot of attention as well. So I'm wondering which which one of them is the, which one of them is the left hand of darkness and which one of them is the right hand right of light. Hand. You know, I don't know. That's what that's what I'm thinking in terms of the title. That the title's meant to be. Well, if a if okay, to one. so if you want a kind of silly interpretation, right? So mm -hmm. he, Ken Lee was a black man, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> and Estravan was the light, so he's the left hand of darkness. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a very literal interpretation. Right. <laughs> um. I mean, that it's just a cool sounding title though it is a cool sign if it, if it didn't even appear in the story i would still think it was a cool sounding title do you want to talk about least favorite things do you have a least favorite thing hmm. i have an issue but a, a, it's not like a moment or a character or anything it's just like a passing thought um not particularly i think some of the the um intrigue was kind of unclear why why things like mm -hmm. why why did estrovan get get ban banished uh, yeah, I'm not really sure. But you know, you have to. I guess you have to understand Shiv Greco. Well, that there we go. That's so. <laughs> so that's that a scapegoat for everything. <laughs> like it's Shiv Greco, you know. You don't get it. We're not Gethenian. The only problem I had with it was the the. It was a really interesting commentary on gender, and and really interesting exploration of what right. a society would be like without without permanent gender. So they right. do have gender, but they just it right. just sort of depends on what's going on, and that's that's a really interesting idea. But in doing that. Um, the text, and I believe it was a Genli point of view chapter, so I don't know if this was Ursula Le Guin just sort of brushing it to the side or Genli brushing it to the side, but there's a, a point where they say that like there's no gaze on Gethin because it's like not biologically possible because once one becomes male, the other will always become female. And I'm like, that's not, that's not really an adequate explanation. What if you just have a gay Gethenian and when his the person he's cameraing with becomes female she also becomes female you know or or, or male and male it's right. like i don't see how sort well, of maybe they, they said you know i guess if you want to argue against it this idea is that it's chemistry so it's like you know once one expresses certain kinds of uh hormones mm -hmm. the opposite hormones are so, that was so, the, that's so, one so, of the so, same so arguments physical and, and right then, that's then, what they said but you can just get four of them together and then just swap Oh, <laughs> well, that's what the the text basically says. It's because it's like hormonal, so the hormones react right. or whatever. But that was like like that's one of the like really old school arguments for why like gay people don't exist because mm. it's it's hormonal. It's the chemical. You're only attracted to the opposite or whatever, and that's just not the case. So I think. Well, but in this case, you know, there were physical changes to the body. I mm -hmm. guess when when the camera. So. Yeah, I mean, I think she probably could have explored it more if this was a book that was written now. I think two things. I think that would have been explored more, and I think uh, Genli and Estravan totally would have hooked up in that tent. I don't think that they would have stopped at uh, we can't touch each other because then we'll be alien to each other. Like that's that wouldn't have happened it, if it wasn't a modern story. I think sometimes you have to stop. <laughs> so um, okay, so I mean, like, in conclusion, I think we we hit on most of the big stuff. So do, do you think the book aged well? Except for what I was just talking about in terms of the... she, I think she could have explored the gender issue more and the sexuality issue more. But I think it's still pretty solid. I would yeah. love to see it adapted as a movie. Really? I think it'd be so interesting. Because they could drum up like a whole slew of actors who are like oh, so gender neutral. The, yeah, I, one comment I should have made, which struck me when I listened to the BBC version, is mm -hmm. that all the Gathenians were voiced by women. Right. And and it just, I don't know, it just, just makes much more of an impression when you hear it. Mm -hmm. when then if you you know the audiobook was read by a man and and so that kind of i guess highlights that that whole whole mm -hmm. idea so you get total different perspective yeah it's difficult for humans to to think of another gender and it's like now we're starting to understand that gender is on like a spectrum or whatever 
and this whole concept that we have two distinct genders sort of is older. So I wonder how, like, if this were to be rewritten for a modern audience, how that would different be different. We obviously don't have gender like Athenians do, right? Because they have like they're they're all basically gender fluid. That's basically what they right. are. Um, really, so fluid. like super fluid, <laughs> like a hundred percent fluid. Uh, they know so, how to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that I mean, I think it it aged pretty well. I think a lot of the themes are. Yeah, I think so, the only thing I noticed this time around was just just his sexism. But yeah, I think I it guess, was intentional. I really do. You've read I, other I Ursula. Right. You've read other Ursula yeah, Quinn yeah. stuff. Is she like a rampant sexist in her? No, not at all. No, I, I think that was in, intentional, particularly to make him different from right. um, Estravan and Estravan's chapters, and to sort of color how important gender is to the way Genley thinks, right? Like everything right. he thinks about. Right. He's constantly thinking about this gender issue. He like can't get it out of his head. Right. Estravan thinks about it but not right. with everything, you know, not with every interaction. And I liked it. I, I liked the book. I thought it was good. good. I'm, glad. I'm glad I made you read it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about um, continuing our podcast, History in Reverse. We're going to read another science fiction book. And uh, you had suggested that we, we pick a theme for the next couple of books. You want to explain that theme? So the theme would be just unusual aliens, right? Mm -hmm. So here we had Gathanians who were, as opposed to Star Trek aliens, which is just green. But which are just humans with pain, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, so the, the, in my eternal quest to get Caroline to read Lamb, <laughs> I suggested that we do Solaris, which is, Solaris, which is not fine. very long. He's been trying to get me to read Solaris for years. <laughs> <laughs> I've read Lamb before, haven't I? Yeah, you've read some stuff. He's the one that... that was he the one that it was that Philip K. Dick the Philip one Philip K. Dick yeah yeah I I I read something by Philip K. Dick when I was younger and and I think I told you it was like he pulled the rug out from under me and then he pulled out the whole house right and it yeah, was like I love that crazy. description yeah. <laughs> it was like really really weird so we'll uh, yeah so Solaris is good you don't know what year Solaris was written do you was it uh, also in the sixties about early sixties okay and that has to do with communication with uh, alien right yeah Aliens. there's a un very unusual alien okay. And Solaris. So that should be fun. <laughs> yeah, so that's what we'll be doing next time. Um, I guess that's any final thoughts on Left Hand in the Darkness? No, I, I enjoyed it. It was good. If you yeah. haven't read it, you should. Now you know what it's about. Uh, if you have any ideas for what the title is about. Um, let us know. Yeah, let us know. Write it somewhere and we'll find it somehow. Yep. Because um, I... I I'm sure someone has written an essay on it. There must be an English major somewhere in the world yeah, that has yeah. written an essay on the title. <laughs> um, all right, so that's that's it. That was our podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for History in Reverse. Um, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. So speak. One, two, three, four, five, six. Hello, this is welcome. a sound check. This is a sound check. Sound um, check, sound check. Let me actually sit where I'm going to be sitting so we can get a sound check. Okay, this is a sound check. This so is you about, can see the little things there. This is about recording. as loud as I talk. Okay. Let's see. Okay. And we've got to try not to touch the table while we're recording.